My guest today is a market designer and game theorist who is working on a better economic system. But before they got into their career in finance, they trained in nuclear engineering. So it's a bit of a jump already. Um, after college, during the peak of the dot-com boom, they started working for tech, uh, tech startups. And this spawned a fascination of the mathematics of information and computation. Currently, they're working as a market design consultant and they have patent work, I think is the correct phrase, but you can correct me on that, on a better commodity market design. Uh, Noah Healy, welcome uh, to the show. Before we talk about the market design, uh, tell me about that jump from nuclear engineering into technology and into the dot-com boom. Why the seemingly sudden change? Uh, well, basically, I needed a job. Um, I had sort of fallen into nuclear engineering in the first place uh, because I, I went to college uh, basically just because that was the thing to do. I, I, was, I grew up in a university town. I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where I'm from. And the University of Virginia, which is uh, – we have, we have a few institutions that are a lot older than it, but it's sort of top – top two public institutions uh, in the country is right here. Um, and so I started taking classes at UVA while I was still in high school because our local high school had a program that would send people to continuing ed if they continued a course of study. And they also had several pilot programs for accelerating mathematical study that I was a part of. And as a result of that, I wound up uh, a few years ahead of grade level. And so the last uh, two years of high school, I was taking math classes at UVA. So it was a, a fairly natural thing to just keep going to college, keep taking math. Uh, and the nuclear engineering department had by far the most interesting instructors. Uh, and just trying to find some way to be useful, uh, energy production is obviously a very fundamental part of what makes economies function. So that seemed like a, a sort of reasonable course to be on. Of uh, course, there aren't a lot of jobs in nuclear engineering in this country. And when I got out of college and needed to have a job, it was, it was 2000. Uh, so getting jobs in, uh, for tech startups was was sort of a can you fog a mirror type of a thing. Um, I actually uh, knew the CTO at a local company who was a part of the games club at UVA, which I was the president of. And so I'd been mostly beating him uh, in games for a few years. Uh, and so he, he figured I must be smart, uh, brought me down. I did the interview. Most uh, most interviews in the tech space are sort of very truncated IQ tests to see if you can solve logic problems. I'm pretty good at logic problems, so I can slide through those pretty easy. Uh, and so then uh, the sort of engineering training kicks in, and I started studying that underlying mathematics and just found a, found a real uh, a calling. Uh, because that mathematics is, if anything, even more fundamental than uh, than energy. That's that's actually um, 
you mentioned there with with the jobs. Like I assume from my layman perspective that nuclear engineering would want be one of those careers that you kind of want to go into because you imagine it's it's a safe career um, with a lot of jobs. Like how people might go into uh, traditionally might go into law because you typically get a high paying job. So it's surprising for me to find find out that there's not many jobs in that in that field. The the difficulty with nuclear engineering's job in this country is that the industry itself is being pushed out. In fact, uh, the the department that I joined, I was the very last person to join the department in the history of UVA uh, because the the board of visitors, which is what they sort of call their uh, you know guidance council of of people that effectively run the university. Uh, just disliked the entire concept of nuclear energy and were, you know, disgusted, revolted at the, at the fact that there was a functioning reactor on grounds. Uh, and so forced them to turn it off and decommission it and, and make the program go away. Uh, the, we're not building new reactors uh, in this country. And uh, the Navy trains operators to to run its its nuclear navy so that's where the primary operator uh source comes from uh i i probably could have gone for some sort of naval commissioning you know path uh but the dot-com boom was 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 rushing and uh, a friend sort of immediately offered me a job as soon as i mentioned that i was about to graduate and so just path of least resistance. Fair dues, fair dues. I'm going to make you feel old now. Um, around the dot-com boom, I was seven years old. Um, so do with that information what you will. Um, so tell me about that job you got um, straight out of college. Uh, it was, I was working for a company uh, that had been formed by a few people, including uh, Merv Griffin's ex-wife. So if you're familiar with uh, Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, his company created those. Um, she, she and her sister invented television game shows. Uh, in fact, she has a co-credit for creating Jeopardy. Um, the two of them were on a flight apparently when the, the quiz show scandal hit. Um, and she came up with the idea sort of in jest, uh, since, since everyone was, was terrified about giving the, the answers away. What if you made a show? Where that was just the gimmick that you gave people the answers up front, um, and and sort of took the sting out of out of the scandal that way. Uh, so they they had created a social gaming platform um, on mostly AOL and Prodigy, uh, and we're starting to see some success and we're growing very rapidly. And so I had a few different uh, jobs. One was the email system, so sending out the customized monthly newsletters uh, to their to their user base, uh, and building out a templating system to allow the the people in marketing to build the kinds of newsletters and the kind of customization they wanted. Uh, and another project, they they had um, multiple. Uh, web servers. And so people's sessions would show up on the web servers. 
and they wanted a thing to merge these logs into a single picture of user experience um, that they could also uh, spread out. The My friend had actually written the first draft of just about everything by himself. And so they were tracking, I believe it was 20 key pages on the site, but they actually had uh, a little over 200 pages that they wanted tracked. And the other problem was that the overhead of the algorithm he was using meant that it was taking more than a day to produce one day's worth of information. Um, and they wanted that fixed up, particularly because the growth meant that the amount of data that they were kind of processing. Uh, I was actually only there for a year before they had mass layoffs. Of course, the peak of the boom was immediately followed by the crash. Yeah. Um, but their, their data volume more than quadrupled uh, just during my tenure of about 11 months. So could it be said that that, that volume of, um, and here's where the British and the Americans are, uh, are, are coming in, with, that volume of data, it sort of influenced your later work? Uh, well, the thing, that, the thing that really hooked me in, um, there were a couple of projects where I started learning the power of algorithms and I was able to uh, reduce the, the time that it took to do that job um, by a factor of about 100. But the real thing was I was able to reduce the memory footprint of that job on the system by a factor of well over 1,000. Um, so sort of... A hundred times faster, a thousand times less space. Uh, and there was another sort of emergency project where I was had to parse out of the mail logs. We had we had a situation where uh, the mail server effectively crashed, and so only some of the the mails had gone out, uh, and we needed to know which people had been mailed so we wouldn't be spamming them. And the crash logs were <laughs> very useless actually um it was it was you know emails getting into a bad state and so it'd be a line saying you know i'm having a problem and then and then a reference and then there'd be a line you know six thousand lines later in the log which was which was the reference string saying Yep, still having a problem, and then a new reference, and that was five to ten deep, and some of them would eventually deliver, and some of them wouldn't. So, so the I needed to build something that would reconstruct all of those, read a line, find out what its next step is going to be, keep a record, check where that's going to, you know, check whether or not this is a new thing or another thing, type type situation. Uh, and that one, by using uh, uh, about five different kinds of, of algorithmic improvements, I was able to get more than a million X uh, speed improvement. Nice. Uh, so learning that that's possible really changes your perceptions about uh, what, what you should be doing in order to be productive um because that's obviously it sounds like that has influenced um your your commodity market design um so before we move on to that um 
for those of us who don't know anything about the financial system, uh, what do we currently have and what are you proposing? Uh, absolutely. So marketplaces uh, are trying to figure out how to get people that make stuff and people that need to use that stuff to come together at a price. This is, this is sort of the broad theory. And so the way that they do this is everyone who's willing to sell shows up and says how much they're willing to sell for. Everyone who's willing to buy shows up and says how much they're willing to buy for. And the system puts these, these two groups in lines. Um, and the front of each line, if the lines sort of intersect on their prices at the front, uh, then, then those trades actually happen. So if, if you're willing to sell for a dollar and I'm willing to buy for a dollar fifty, then the market will find, find a way to get us together and make us make a deal. Um, the trick is that those lines don't really cross like that. So what's actually going on is, you know, I'm willing to buy for a dollar and you're willing to sell for a dollar fifty. And neither of us really wants to cross that chasm because we're losing by doing that. You know, if you come all the way over to me this second, maybe I'd have been willing to come all the way over to you the next second and you're leaving 50 cents on the table. Um, and so there's this sort of virtual tug of war going. Um, now, of course, what makes this more complicated in the real world is that it's not just you and me, you know, sort of playing chicken with each other. Um, there's actually tens of thousands of uh, trading firms that are putting in orders. Uh, and they have very powerful computer algorithms that are analyzing information streams from around the world. And the system is actually capable of updating itself in a microsecond. So a million times a second, these lines are forming and then being blown up as people look at the form and they're like, whoa, I don't want to be, you know, third in line when it looks like this. I'll put in this. Oops, now I'm fifth in line. No, I was trying to be fourth in line, you know, that as everyone jockeys and re-jockeys and re-re-jockeys for position. Um, so this, this creates a very complicated practical situation right now. Um, what I'm proposing is a system where uh, there's two different kinds of marketplaces that are being glued together. In the first place, there's a sort of forecasting negotiation market where people are attempting to plot out a course of where prices are and where they're going. And in the second place, there's a delivery clearinghouse where people can see this plotted course um, and make overtures based on that course. So the, when you're making a, a choice about committing to a trade, the price has already been fixed. Um, and when you have speculation about what will happen in the future, then what you're doing is adding information to a system that's trying to, to stabilize prices. All right. Where, where does this information come from? Does that come from the buyers, the sellers, or perhaps a third party? Where, where does it come from? 
It comes from literally everybody, actually. Uh, so it's it's this 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 piece is a little hard to wrap your head around, but we collectively know more than any one of us individually knows. So each of us has sort of a little piece of reality. Some people have bigger pieces. Some people have smaller pieces. Um, you know, some people are so delusional that they have no contact with reality at all. Uh, but, but everyone sort of has a little piece of reality. And in order to get our businesses to sort of operate effectively, they need to have access to a, this sort of big, clear picture of reality, much bigger than any one of them has alone. And so the goal of this forecasting market is to create a very high rate of return environment where almost anybody with almost any size piece of reality has a positive incentive to throw their two cents in and see how it stacks up. Uh, and, and so that's, that's, that's who will come to that party. All right. Um, cause from my sort of like, um, I try, I try to understand the paper. Um, bear in mind, I'm just a simple social scientist. Uh, <laughs> um, so from my understanding, I think I might have this slightly wrong that everyone who provides information will sort of get some kind of return or like it's, it's lower of a risk. I mean, guide, guide me, guide me through this because I'm probably going up down the wrong path. Okay, sure. Well, so the risk profile, let's, let's talk about sort of now versus proposal. So right now, um, there are certain kinds of things that you can do where you effectively have an unlimited risk. Uh, and if you've heard of naked shorting, uh, that's when you sell something that you don't know yeah. uh, on the prospect that you'll buy it back later. Well, how much is it going to cost later? You don't know. Nobody knows. Um, so under those circumstances, you have unlimited risk. And in general, in the existing system, people are trading on what's known as margin. So they have a certain amount of risk involved. And as long as the equity of their positions is good enough, then the market will let them keep going. Yeah. Um, this was, if you saw the big short, uh, when everybody was, was sort of, you know, being mad at uh, the shorts when they, when they were sort of holding fast and things were still going against them. Uh, if you have a position that's currently wrong, but you're sure it's going to be right in the future, you have to have enough money so that you'll be able to pay off your counterparties. Um, and if the market, and the market's basically allowed to look inside your pocket to see how much money you've got. If you don't have enough money, then what they'll do is they'll liquidate your position. They'll just go into the market, sell it off, pay off your counterparties, it's over. So if, if you're going to be right tomorrow, but today you're wrong enough that you can't cover your counterparties, then you'll get wiped out today. You'll lose all the money now. And tomorrow, the fact that you were right doesn't mean anything. Yeah. That kind of scenario where you're at risk for more money than you've actually invested doesn't exist in my marketplace. On the other hand, uh, you could still be wiped out for the money that you did invest. 
So if you're just 100% wrong, if you're one of these fully delusional folks that just has no idea what's going on, you set up and everyone else on earth said down, um, and then, then you're just totally wrong. And uh, then the system is going to take your investment and split it up and use it to pay off the people who had to correct the mistake you made. But every little bit of correct that you are counts in your favor in my system. Because we're measuring information, um, we, can, we can sort of take the bad from the good. So um, if, if you think about uh, like any kind of measurement, um, there's a little bit of error at the end of it. If you're trying to figure out how wide a doorway is, you pull out the tape measure. You know, maybe you're not perfectly flat and you're a little cockeyed. There's going to be a little error there. Yeah. But most of what you're measuring is correct. You know, it's, it's about this wide. It's, you, you're going to be 90%, 99% correct. The, what this system does is because it's, it's sort of measuring the length of what you're doing and then figuring out which part of that length was correct. If none of it was correct, then it's zero. Then you get nothing. But if 1% of it was correct, then you get 1% of the money you're expecting back. If it was 90%, then you get 90% of the money you're expecting back. Um, and so when you pair that up with an extremely high rate of return, then you get some really amazing things. So if you set up a CDM that has, say, 100% annualized rate of return, and somebody's making a prediction for 10 years from now, then their expected return on that investment is a factor of 1,024. If that prediction is 1% correct, then they're not going to get 1,024% or 1,024x back, but they will get 10.24% X back. Um, and 10X on a 10-year investment, that's still a lot better than most people do on 10-year investments. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where even if you've got sort of a tiny piece of the world and a small, small contribution to make, there's still going to be economically viable and, and personally valuable slots in the system for people to be able to to toss in their their opinions and knowledge so it sort of sounds like as well everyone is kind of making predictions as they go along uh so we've got um traders who are uh, who will be buying commodities you've got suppliers um i remember in the video you told uh, that you sent there was also a third um group so yeah I, I identify sort of three separate critical players. There's the producers, there's the consumers, and then there's the sort of informed forecasters, which are sort of hats the producers and consumers can wear, but also other people. Um, existing, re, you know, hedge funds have researchers. Uh, that would be part of it. Reporters, um, people in government, uh, if you're... If, if, if there's a new set of regulations coming down the pike or a new negotiation for imports or shutting down imports coming up, you might know a lot about the future of, of beef or, or oil. Uh, and so all of those 
all of those different potential sources of information can come together and be integrated into sort of one super mind of, of planning for the future. And I think, um, if I recall correctly, that super mind is the algorithm. Uh, how much can you tell me about that? Uh, okay. So the integration um, basically is looking at a distance function for functions. So let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Um, functions you might be used to from school as sort of squiggly lines on graph paper. Yeah. Uh, and that is more or less what functions are at, at sort of a very basic level. Uh, we, can, we can talk about the distance between two things in a, in a bunch of different ways. And if, you're, if you've used like, you know, online mapping systems, it'll tell you, you know, you need to go from here to there. Here's like three different proposals for how you can do it. And, you know, it'll say, you know, this is the best that's the shortest. You know, what's, what's the difference between the best and the shortest? Well, traffic maybe. Um, and, and perhaps you know better than the algorithm, so you can go in and kind of drag things around. And when you do, it'll, it'll pop up, you know, how long it thinks that will take or, or how many miles that new thing is. Those kinds, of, those kinds of differences give you a sense of what's going on when you're measuring the difference between two functions. Um, what I'm doing is uh, using a, a pretty basic algorithm to effectively measure how many bits difference there are between the description of one squiggly line and another squiggly line. So by, by measuring it in bits or, or some other information space thing, um, that's where we have an information quantification where we can get that measurement out and, and figure out whether it's, it's right or wrong. And so within that context, the marketplace doesn't care whether or not you're moving prices up or down. It cares whether or not you're moving prices towards their correct value or away from their correct value. And it doesn't know what those are yet. So it's going to assume that you're correct, charge you an investment fee based on integrating your information as if it were correct. And then once it actually gets used by producers and consumers trading, then whichever price winds up, wherever the price winds up and is actually getting used, that was the correct, that is now the correct price. And we can now compare each person's guesses with this new final point of now I know what the right answer was. So we can just go back in and, and check, you know, was your answer always towards correct? Was it always away from correct? Was it towards correct a little bit? And we can measure that directly. And um, talking of checking, checking the guesses, um, if I understand it correctly, everybody can check everything like the data is open for analysis yes it's fully public uh and this creates this creates a strong incentive to stabilize because once you see everybody else's guesses then you can take that information on board with what you know and create a new guess and so um 
perhaps you're somewhat familiar with sort of sample sizes. You said social science. Yeah. Yeah. There's a general principle that um, there's a sort of quadratic relationship. If you want twice the accuracy, you need four times the sample size. Mm -hmm. You want 10 times the accuracy, you need 100 times the sample size. Um, But what this does is it would let, say, a sample of 100 people take a look at the first 100 guesses, you know, at the end of the first day, and then each one of those people with effectively 100 people's worth of information going in each can now make a new set of guesses, which creates a, f- a, a pseudo effective 10,000 person sample size. Um, but that's after one day. After a second day, it would be a million person effective sample size, 100 million and so on. So effectively, every day, a new firm digit shows up from 100 people. Um, And that works because everybody has a positive incentive towards this this final product of of collective stability. Uh, And so that that creates a, a very sort of powerful system of, of uh, forecast and control. Perfect. Um, it's sort of like, uh, I'm stealing a phrase from the tech world, like op- open source? It, well, so kind, the, pro- kind of? yeah, the project itself actually is open source overseas. So you had mentioned the patent work. I'm doing patent work in the United States, but because international patents cost millions of dollars and are very complex, and I'm having enough trouble just with the USPTO, uh, the, the, the project is open source overseas. Uh, yeah. And open source has a lot of advantages um, for security purposes. All right, epic. Um, I feel like that's a pretty, a pretty, a pretty thorough introduction to, uh, to the CDM there. So let's move on a little bit now. And so I think in the notes that we, we um, that, that you mentioned, and I'm really interested to talk about this, is, um, is economics as information. Uh, what's your perspective? And um, do, you want to tell, do you want to tell me about what you do? Yeah, sure. So the, the critical thing, I think, to understand is that we see the buying and selling of goods. And so we see sort of money changing hands for for services or or products, and we say that's economics. Um, but there's a third factor that we aren't really paying attention to, that's sort of hidden behind those first two factors. Um, that if we pull it out, makes the entire thing a lot clearer, uh, and that is information. Um, there's information embedded in the product about product quality and so on. Um, there's information embedded in money itself, where money is essentially measuring value. It's the unit of measurement for value that we have. Um, and so what an economy is doing is very imperfectly managing the information of our capacities and desires and trying to find systems of co-compatibility of those things. Uh, so, you know, Elon Musk wants to live on Mars. We, the species of humanity, does not have the technological capacity 
to build Martian colonies right now. He's working on it. Maybe we'll see. Uh, but but if if we didn't have that capacity, you know, he, he won't get his wish. Um, and if nobody had that wish, we would never develop that capacity. Uh, you know, like it would be sort of pointless to to try to figure out how to build Martian colonies if if everyone on Earth was sort of permanently never leaving ground. Yeah. So so separating out that aspect of things of communication allows us to understand that what we're actually doing is very clunky and very noisy um, because money is also tied up in our political system and and credit systems and a bunch of opaque companies that do a lot of things that are are very bad and very insecure uh and that's at the heart of uh how we're measuring the system that provides us our bacon and eggs in the morning so that's not perhaps ideal uh also the product quality um we've seen a sort of vast expansion of the retail system over the last couple of centuries uh as products have evolved and become more sophisticated um but then they've also separated so now you need much greater expertise to be able to choose between different products um and companies exploit that failure of expertise uh and we have the whole um right to fix things movement i don't know if that's uh the same kind of deal in Europe as in the United States, but uh, there's there's a sort of vociferous counter-revolutionary force against companies like Apple uh, or or even Tesla of people who want to be able to buy things and own them and change them however they want to change them. And companies that, you know, are like, we're going to, we're going to take your money and you'll move around with this product in the world. But we we want control over that physical object indefinitely, and if we decide you shouldn't have it anymore, well, we're just going to take it away from you. Mm. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to see that other perspective um, on on like e- economics as, as communication, because my limited understanding was sort of more of the traditional role. So, in effect, somebody would be working for whatever company um, we call them. We call them. Goldman Sachs or whatever. This first one I can figure off the top of my head. And they would look at the data, they would look at the markets and what's currently happening, who's buying, who's selling. And then they would um, almost present to the, the, the decision makers, well, what does this actually mean? It's really interesting to see that other side. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, in particular, because once you start thinking about the marketplaces as mass communication systems, which is a much fairer description of them than sort of their general uh, conception these days as some sort of, you know, pack of cannibalistic piranhas or something, um, is that as information systems, they are abject failures. Um, They used to work very well. But uh, we're now having 
frequent serial continent scale uh, uh, credit crises, asset valuation crises, all sorts of things. Uh, and when you dig into them as information systems, it becomes immediately obvious what's going on. That that microsecond dance that I was talking about earlier that's now possible and that extremely large uh, scale filtering of information by not particularly intelligent algorithms, but still functionally, tactically useful algorithms because human beings have much narrower awareness uh, means that there is a great deal more noise in the marketplace than there used to be. And so, whereas, say, prior to telegraphy, the markets function generally better uh, and, and might have been likened in some way to, say, a symphony orchestra, um, now we've replaced sort of every second violin with a jackhammer, and we're still trying to listen to the same compositions, and, and we can't hear them anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's it's just really interesting just to learn about something that I know nothing about. Um, so I'm really grateful for you being incredibly patient with me um, regarding this. And you also mentioned um, that we've had at least at, at least a few sort of like major economic events. Um, like off the top of my head, I can think of um, the dot com crash. Uh, the housing market crash in 2007. I think I was about 14, 15 when that happened. Um, and then more recently, we've had um, coronavirus. And I don't know what it's like over there in the UK. Um, we're calling it, oh, over there in the USA, I should say, uh, we're calling it the cost of living crisis. Inflation is, is bad here as well. Um, but that's, that's sort of not alone. Um, the uh, China is having a banking issue uh, right now where one of their regional banks committed fraud and lost most of its depositors' money. Uh, and in response to this, there's uh, a, apparently a growing movement to stop mortgage payments on properties that have not yet been built because they were creating mortgages before the project actually got off the ground. Um, how big or small that turns out to be remains to be seen, but, uh, Evergreen, one of their large property developers, something like uh, half a year ago had a very near miss of a few billion dollars on its major bonds. And there's a lot of questions about whether or not that would be a moment if they did miss similar to the 2007 crisis. So China might be in the early stages of a crisis like the 2007 crisis. There was also, in the early 90s, a Japanese property crisis, which the Japanese market hasn't really recovered from since. Um, and again, about half a year ago, the Japanese central bank uh, became the first central bank in human history to own more than half of the bond market. So half of all loans, effectively, in the Japanese economy are, in fact, being held by their central bank. Um, that's, that's, that's kind of a tipping point in, in terms of where you're going. Um, 
it's not confined to the northern developed world. Zimbabwe rather famously had a severe bout of hyperinflation several years ago. Uh, and you can acquire for a very modest fee a $10 trillion bill uh, from Zimbabwe uh, that that is perhaps appropriately the the sigil on it is three rocks stacked on one another. Uh, and then you know, a one followed by 14 zeros up in the corner. Uh, the nickel market was actually shut down not too long ago uh, because of a short squeeze that may have bank that would have bankrupted the world's largest stainless steel manufacturer had it been allowed to go forward. Um, about five years ago, the beef market in the United States collapsed for about six months and was untraded. Um, so they they don't make news as frequently as they once did, um, but there actually are a lot of serious dislocations, um, and and that's leaving out the very clearly fraudulent uh, dislocations which have occurred. Um, uh, things like the savings and loan banking crisis that caused the crash in '87. Um, or the potentially very severe long-term capital management failure, which was in 97. Um, we're seeing markets becoming much less stable. I Just last week, I was talking to an uh, Indian rice trader out of Dubai, and he was mentioning that the rice market in sort of the South Asia region uh, was up over 30% year on year. Um, so you know, think about your grocery bill, think about plus 30%. Uh, I'm not quite there yet in this country, uh, but, uh, but people are. Uh, of course, the Sri Lanka situation where their country is more or less disintegrated. Uh, the not having awareness of how to cooperate with each other to match up our capacities with our desires uh, means mismatching those things. And that can get almost arbitrarily bad. Um, the, one of the, the great natural experiments of the 20th century was the Soviet system of Eastern Europe and, and the USSR and China before they decided to start using external markets to guide themselves where bureaucratic systems would just by diktat declare what the economy was and wasn't to do. And they killed tens of millions of people by starvation and privation um, because they, their plans didn't accord with reality, and, uh, and reality always wins those things. Yeah, it's um, and adding adding to all of this as well. I was watching a documentary a few, week, few, few weeks ago that was talking about uh, the banking crisis we had in 2007-2008 um, and it took a deep dive into what our Chancellor at the time, um, Alistair Darling, who had the biggest eyebrows you've ever seen, uh, <laughs> how he effectively went to the 11th hour with the banks. He got all of the major banks in the UK in one room because uh, I believe RBS was I can't remember exactly what they're doing. You probably know more than me. Um, effectively caused the crisis 
or, or, or at least sort of was a big player in it. Um, so it's really interesting just to talk to someone and be like, oh, what does that actually mean for, for us? Well, so that's actually the, the 2007 banking crisis that sort of went around the world uh, is an excellent example of precisely the kind of recursion damage that the market is so very prone to. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what happened was that by creating these these mortgage products where you could bundle together a bunch of mortgages and create a very safe investment, they expanded the the marketplace for mortgage credit. Um, but what that did is it created inflation in housing prices. But people don't think of all inflation as equal. So if I've got like an old master up on my wall and it's worth $100,000 and next year it's worth $100 million, I don't say to myself, oh, inflation is out of control. It's insane that this thing is worth a thousand times what it used to be. I say, oh, my taste is so fantastic. The rest of the world has caught up to understanding that I'm right about this. And the same thing happens with people's housing prices. The people who own houses see their house value go up by 10% in a year, 20% in a year. And they don't say, oh, the financial system has lost its collective mind. These people are, are criminally destroying my country's ability to have an economy. They say, oh, let me get a bank loan and take a vacation. <laughs> and, and that just exacerbates the issue because the more credit that's in the system and available for these, the higher the prices can go. Um, you know, if somebody's got a, a 10% mortgage on a house that's worth $100,000, $10,000, and then the house is suddenly worth $200,000, well, why shouldn't they be able to take out another $10,000? Um, and if they do that to redo their bathroom and a fresh bathroom means that the house is worth another $100,000, why shouldn't you give them another and just keep going? And, and you know, they're changing the tile and nobody really cares in the first place. So you like it, but value is about what we collectively believe. Um, and so we got into this situation where increasing the, the value of the marketplace inflated the underlying uh, assets, which caused the entire marketplace to expand. And that's classic bubble behavior. When the market's behavior affects its own outcomes, then you get this sort of walking on air sensation, which feels really great until like Wile E. Coyote, you look down and realize that, you know, it's, it's the Grand Canyon out there um, and, and the rock has fallen on your head. Um, and so, yeah, the... The companies that were doing the very best in that environment of spinning this wheel to make everything as bad as possible, as quickly as possible, were doing the very best of all the companies. And then they crashed the very hardest of all the companies because everything that they'd been doing was actually making things worse. 
Yeah. Um, thank you so much for letting me sort of learn about economics and um, inflation. And I thought I learned definitely more than I was expecting to learn. So thank you for that. Um, before we round off, I finish every uh, podcast with a questionnaire. Uh, very different to the questionnaire I sent you over email. Uh, and they come from the Prost questionnaire, which is, we're, we're talking late 19th century now. Uh, it was later adapted by Bernard Pivot and then uh, by James Lipton on Inside the Actors Studio. And now I'm presenting my adaptation uh, to yourself. What is your favorite word? My favorite word? Uh, probably coom. It's the hardest hangman word. It's the only English word that has no vowels in it. Um, and it actually shows up in the Lord of the Rings. I believe uh, uh, at some point during the return of the king, Sam and uh, Frodo find themselves in a coom. A coom, C-W-M, is a borrow word from Welsh, I believe. And it's a sort of narrow and steep-sided uh, gully. Okay, that's actually generally interesting. Would you think any less of me if I said I've only watched half of the first movie? <laughs> that's that's completely fine. Uh, <laughs> I, I I'm sad to say that I'm not a massive uh, Lord of the Rings fan. I did read the books as a child and found them relatively dull. Uh, I think. I think the real key to those books is the people who love Aragorn like them a lot, and I, I didn't. Um, and I think, uh, I think the bits in the Shire are the best. I, I, I love The Hobbit, and, uh, and that's, uh, I, think, I think The Hobbits are the best of Tolkien, although I, I recognize and am aware that there's vastly more, and it's not the thing that he primarily cared about. All right. What is your least favorite word? Oh, I don't really have that kind of relationship with words. Um, style. Style is so underdefined. We use it in an enormous number of contexts uh, to mean everything from uh, individual idiosyncrasy to to sort of collective. Uh, states of approval and at no point is it ever defined and of course it's also uh a gap in offense have we got style here i think we got style though we're saying we've got style uh what engages you i find i find computational mathematics uh and reason in general highly engaging um i'm also a fan of uh silver age science fiction uh, and film uh, probably own something like 500 or 600 movies and, and something like 2,000 books. Nice. You just, this is an audio podcast, but you've just seen the smile on my face when you mentioned Silver Age film. What disengages you? Uh, writing. Writing just instantaneously disengages my brain. It, it does not like doing that at all. What sound or noise do you love? The, the opening to the Brandenburg Concerto, that, that always raises my mood. Uh, or Vivaldi, um, that's something about Baroque structural things, that's, that's always enjoyable. It, it, it unlocks something inside, doesn't it? It sort of just, just gets you going. Yeah, yeah, it really does. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, 
do you guys have um oh what are those damn things called um that the name's escaping me for a second there's this insect that's the longest living insect in the world they have like a 17 year life cycle they burrow under the ground and they all come out at once um cicadas do you guys have cicadas i've heard of them i'm not sure i i'm gonna google that <laughs> if you were if you were you know, seven in 2000, then it's been 29 years. And so cicadas would have come out in your lifetime. And if cicadas had come out in your lifetime, you would know that you had them. Okay. They, so crickets, crickets chirping away in the field, that can get loud and irritating if you're out in the country. Um, cicadas, imagine if they were so loud that in the middle of the city, it was like it was like crickets were nesting in your ears. That they they have this kind of rush strategy where they the they're burrowed underground at like tree roots, and every seventeen or twenty three or nineteen years, they all emerge at once, and they go up and they sit on tree branches and they just rattle as loudly as they possibly can, um, and it's just unbelievable it's it's uh you know how like emergency like like bullhorns specifically choose like dissonant tones to cut through yeah that's that's the sort of frequency they operate on but it's not it's not like the ambulance going past and then it's gone and you know at least you did did a good deed by getting out of the way it's just constant and incessant it lasts for weeks um, it doesn't slow down or stop for nighttime. It's just there and it's on. And it's when it's hot outside. It's just awful. Talk, talking of insects flooding back, you brought you just brought you just unlocked an old memory of mine where I used to live in Lincolnshire, uh, particularly in the south of Lincolnshire, and um, that is just flat. It's below sea level and it's flat. Um, and uh, because of that, we had loads of ditches that were, were dug. And I remember, and this just makes, I don't know how, what this makes you sound like, but I remember I used to catch grasshoppers. Um, so just go out and just sort of like catch them for a little bit and then release them again. Uh, so yeah, you just brought a memory flooding back. Question seven. What is your favorite curse word? Uh, I don't really curse that often. Uh... As a, as a computer scientist and, and mathematician, my, my most damning phrase is usually suboptimal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adopt that one, actually, for myself. It, it sounds so sophisticated, doesn't it? I could just say, look at you, you're suboptimal. Actually, I might, I might, I might do that when I, when I go see my siblings again. Um, what profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Well, just about anything, really. Uh, Sherlock Holmes being a consultant detective, that would be fun. I've never really had the fantasy of having a job at any point. Uh, I've just sort of, well, we talked about it before, sort of path of least resistance. You know, I need to have an income. Oh, there's, there's an opportunity. Go for that. Um, so different opportunities unfolding in front of me, I could very easily see myself going and doing some other things. Uh, but uh, actually wanting to do these things, like it doesn't really, it doesn't really gel for me. Uh, I can't, I can't close that connection. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some sort of 
think tank expert or something that that might work for me. All right, maybe this one will be a bit easier. What profession would you not like to do? Sales. I've been doing that yeah. for a while, and and I'm bad at it, and it's hard to do. So yeah, I, I'd rather get out. Yeah, yeah, same. I I did sales for a little bit. Just no, no. Final question: If you could only say one statement to any one person, what would that statement be, and who would that person be? Only a single statement. Yeah, that's a toughie. Uh, I mostly speak my mind to people when and as uh, I can. So, boiling things down to single statements, uh, I, I don't have. I don't have much for that. I guess just for anybody, uh, read Turing's paper on general computation. It's the most profound idea that humanity has ever produced. And we mentioned before, I live in Milton Keynes. Um, I'm literally about five, 10 minute drive from Bletchley Park. Um, I've got a friend who works there as well. Uh, Noah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for being really patient with me and helping me sort of understand um, economics just a little bit more. Uh, and I hope also that our listeners have picked up something new. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your time. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Yay. You have just listened to a production of Tom Meets Interesting People. If you are interested in taking part in this podcast, or you know somebody that might make a great guest, please email us at tommeetsinterestingpeople at gmail.com. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Guests may provide material which demonstrates their work. It is the understanding that this material does not infringe on the copyright of others, and the guest has signed a release form confirming that they have obtained permission for the copyrighted material to be played on this podcast. All other rights reserved. Copyright 2022.